Welcome to our Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Connecting our Harvard Macy community and discussing health professions, education topics and literature. So welcome to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast, a podcast that aims to connect our Harvard Macy community and to develop our interests in health professions, educational topics and literature. I'm Victoria Brazel and today we're going to be talking about communities of practice and specifically virtual communities of practice. How do we find our people in an online world and how do we develop our strategies to make those online connections and relationships productive for our professional development and support? So to do this today, I'm joined by two friends, colleagues, and recognised world experts in this area, Dr. Teresa Chan and Dr. Michelle Lin. So Teresa Chan uh, is an emergency physician and a health professions education academic in Canada. Uh, She's also a well-established blogger, associate editor for various uh, online and real-world journals. Uh, But do you want to tell us a little bit about why you're interested in all things online, Teresa? All right. So, I mean, I think my story links up um, as being inspired by your other guest, Dr. Michelle Lin, and a bunch of other people who got onto this online space, uh, including one of the other HMI alumni, Brent Toma, uh, who's at University of Saskatchewan. So there was this mounting interest in online education and teaching and learning. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to make that a little bit more of a legitimate practice. And I think that uh, a lot of the work that I've done has been to bring in medical education principles, theories, and now health professions education principles and theories into that uh, into that space. Excellent. And just to sort of finish off your introduction, uh, you were at uh, Harvard Macy this year, is that right? Yeah, I was uh, one of uh, the HMI leaders' uh, instructors, I guess. Um, I'd attended in 2015, and that was really awesome. Uh, and yeah, so now that uh, I've taken the role of assistant dean of uh, faculty development here at our Faculty of Health Sciences at McMaster University, I thought maybe I have the credibility now to go and teach at the illustrious Harvard Macy Institute. <laughs> <laughs> You're too kind. Uh, all right, well, uh, before we get Back into that topic, I'm going to introduce my other guest, Dr. Michelle Lin. Uh, so Michelle is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, and she's founder of an educational organization called Academic Life in Emergency Medicine, which is well known to those of us in that particular professional craft group. How are you, Michelle? Very good. Hello from sunny California. Happy to join the conversation. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Now, did you want to just a bit like Teresa just did, just give us a little taste at this point about how you got involved or even interested in all things online and education? Everything online, I feel like mirrors exactly what we're doing in person, but on a much greater scalable and I think sustainable fashion. So when I was, uh, I'd say eight or nine years into my career, I realized, gosh, what is this thing that Justin Bieber is doing? What is this blog thing? How can he reach so many people in just a snap of a finger? And it really sparked my interest about, wow, maybe there's a huge sandbox we should be playing in but aren't in. And I've kind of stumbled into this world of digital education and scholarship. Uh, that's uh, that's a very nice introduction, and uh, our listeners might not know, but welcome to I don't know about fifty million unique online visitors since then. But we'll come back to that, Michelle. <laughs> 
Uh, and you're also Harvard Macy alumnus, is that correct? Absolutely. You and I actually attended the same year many, many, many years ago. And I think that's one of the first instances why I crossed paths with you. In- indeed. Full circle moment. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So today what we're going to be doing is reviewing a paper, at least using an article uh, as a starting point for our discussion about virtual communities of practice. So the title of this article is Finding Your People in the Digital Age, Virtual Communities of Practice to Promote Education Scholarship. And this is by Drs. Yaris, Chan, Gottlieb, and Juve. And that Chan is indeed Teresa, who we've got with us. So we've got an author and a discussant. Uh, This paper was published in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education in February 2019. And it's a short commentary article about communities of practice for medical educators, specifically about virtual communities of practice, and that is a community of practice that utilizes web-based technology to facilitate communication and engagement. And it gives a little deconstruction of what makes a virtual community of practice and some examples. So before we get into the what of the paper, maybe, Teresa, you can give us a little sense of the why. What are you hoping to achieve when you write a commentary uh, like this? Uh, what was the author's motivation here? All right. So to be completely honest, um, I think we were asked to do this because Lainey, who is one of the authors, had worked with Michael Gottlieb and myself to actually create something called the Alien Faculty Incubator. And so that's the same alien that Michelle runs. And we have an online community practice model that we had used to actually create meaningfully an innovation to help people develop themselves as faculty in an asynchronous, distributed manner. And so I think that when Lainey was asked to author a commentary, she couldn't think of anyone else other than me and Mike. And I think that our uh, fourth author is actually someone at her shop that she works with quite a bit um, in terms of scholarship. And so that became our SWAT team. And so unfortunately, and fortunately, I guess, sometimes you get into these things because of who you know. And sometimes you know people because you've uh, worked with them before in other projects. And so as much as that can be sometimes disappointing for some people who aren't in the know, it is also a reason why you should volunteer for things. You never know when something might pan out to be a great opportunity. Yeah, and interestingly, that's almost an example of what we're talking about here is that your community of practice, as it were, created some opportunities for your own educational scholarship. Exactly. And actually, that's the the background behind the Alien Faculty Incubator was that after attending things like Harvard Macy or graduate studies, I was still left thinking I was lonely, that I was trying to carve out a niche on my own at my shop. No one else was interested in online education. And until we started creating structures like the Alien Faculty Incubator or the um, Canadium, so that's another blog that I help run, we have the Canadium Digital Scholars Program where we've been doing one to three people and mentoring them up. Um, until these online communities started forming, I felt like I, I didn't really have a, a group of people to turn to when I was having trouble with yet another revise and resubmit or rejection, right? Um, and so scholarizing, I guess, uh, the free open access medical education movement was something that Brent Toma and I kind of carved out Anish and invited Michelle along. And that's how we kind of began our relationship with uh, doing the scholarly work. Um, I quickly realized that that could be replicated and scaled, like Michelle was saying, if we could create uh, ways to connect people. Yeah, this is a really um, nice 
granular example, I think, of exactly what the paper's talking about. Uh, before we get into maybe a couple of little definitional things about community practice, Michelle, can I ask you to jump in here? Uh, because you are at the intersection of this, both in terms of uh, Teresa's specific example, but obviously your own experience of, uh, you know, why we need something like uh, these kind of connections. Yo, I echo ex- everything that, that Teresa said. And I'm not necessarily an expert per se, but I do have to say I've probably been observing this landscape the longest since 2009 when we started and when I joined Twitter and did the blog. I think it's incredibly important to to join some kind of community, find your people as it were. But that community, interestingly for at least our ALEM team, our communities have evolved over time. And this paper, when you ask about why this paper is important, this paper actually in retrospect helps me understand why our community has evolved as it did. It really gave it some language, some structure that I wish I had been more intentional about. But I guess if you're kind of more starting out, the table that they have is a really great framework to think about, oh, what are the different ways you can build a community? What are the pros and cons? Maybe what are some examples? It really just completely demystifies the idea of, oh, I am in a virtual community of practice. So I'm glad to talk about this. It's really what we're already doing now, right? Because the Harvard Macy Institute is a community of practice. Uh, The AAMC is a community of practice. And we're just trying to help you translate this into the digital space but maybe more on steroids. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And speaking of steroids, uh, I think it's useful to get a little bit of an idea about the metrics that you're talking about. So you're, and you use the term ALIM just for our listeners, that is the short, the acronymized version of academic life in emergency medicine. It's actually at the interface, isn't it, between educators' worlds and clinical emergency medicine. You've got both of those aspects on your blog. Uh, But how many people visit your blog every year, Michelle? Uh, it's hard to say. It kind of waxes and wanes, but I'd say we're up to about two and a half million views a year, not by individual users, but just how many pages are accessed. Yeah. So, you know, we are talking about a decent uh, volume of things. Um, so it might be worth coming back then, Teresa, because we've sort of been banding around this term communities of practice. The article does uh, define that. And I kind of wonder if we're precise about it because clearly just a bunch of Twitter followers is not necessarily a community of practice. Um, my friend Jesse Spur likes to make a distinction between traffic and audience when it comes to the online world. But could you just sort of take us through a bit about uh, what actually is a community of practice and then maybe more specifically a virtual one? Sure. So a community of practice is a term that was coined by um two social scientists, Lave and Wenger, who defined it originally um, in their work on situated learning. So how people learn kind of in the workplace is what they studied. They studied all sorts of different uh, groups of people, none of them physicians, none of them definitely online physicians, but definitely uh, understanding how people apprenticed into a craft, how they kept that community alive of practitioners. And so it definitely resonates with across everywhere um, in terms of uh, the implications for a shared group of people who are actually working together. So the three characteristics are a mutual agreement where 
members establish group norms and build relationships with, e- with each other. Uh, number two is a joint enterprise where the group determines its focus or domain. And number three is a shared repertoire of resources. And so out of all of those things, um, you have to kind of have a group norm where people actually know each other, build relationships, work with each other. They have to work in the same environment, in the same kind of uh, subject content area. And then uh, again, they kind of share things back and forth. So you can imagine a bunch of high school teachers that all teach science in a city might become a community of practice. Uh, people who do basket weaving on the weekends on Saturday mornings who meet and actually do all those things and decide that they're only going to do this kind of basket weaving and stay in this domain, but then help people to understand and share that repertoire of resources and patterns might be another group community practice. And so that's what a community practice by definition is. And then a virtual community practice is integrating um, uh, and building upon Levin Wagner's work um, and uh, a couple of other scientists, um, Dubeg comes to mind as one of the lead scientists that translated into the virtual space, but uh, bringing in how digital technologies can help interface that as well. Because if you like basket weaving on Saturdays, that might be not a great time for a lot of other people. And so maybe you can't actually all meet. And so maybe you need to do a basket weavers forum online so that everyone can asynchronously interact and share patterns and do the things that they do and show show pictures of each other's work, right? Yeah, I'm loving your analogies, Uh, not being a basket weaver myself, but uh, it really makes the point, doesn't it, is that, you know, geography has been a limiter to uh, our communities of practice and it may not have to be if we've now got some online tools that can enable that. A little question I've got, and I'm interested in both your comments, but start with you, Teresa. You know, so is this necessarily an intentional enterprise or can you just see this organic formation and then later we recognize the aspects of the community of practice and then can put the label on it what do you think so i think that when you first get engaged with a space um, it'll feel like you're coming in something new and maybe when you are a founding member of that space like michelle was there might not be a lot of other people so you can't be a community of one in my opinion Uh, But over time, as other people start saying, hey, that's an interesting thing, maybe they emulate, maybe they email you, maybe they pick up the phone and call you or they hunt you down at a conference and people are starting to, you know, like ask your opinion and share resources. Um, And in the Twitter sphere, sometimes it's just discovering that you too are someone who likes to make serious games online and distribute them and have a bit of a group of people who do that as a side gig, right? Um, I think it's about creating those spaces where people can connect and then out of that can emerge that shared cognition, that shared domain, and then the sharing of resources. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, And I think maybe in the article that figure two and figure one really give us that little sense of how connected are you to this community um, and, you know, what are the levels of participation in this virtual community of practice? Uh, Michelle, can I ask you to start with that same question? You know, do you think this is an intentional thing or an organic thing? And then maybe just give us a little sense uh, of your own experience of definitely cultivating a virtual community of practice. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can actually, that's the beauty of these communities is you can go either way. You can go top down, 
uh, a large established community being very intentional in transitioning or, or expanding out into the digital space. Or you can be from bottom up. You can be very organic and say, gosh, I'm a basket weaver on, on only Fridays and I can't find my people. And sure, go ahead and build your own organic space and build up from there. And then eventually you'll have you'll dominate the basket weaving space. Who knows? But I do want to caution that if you are going to start organically to do your homework, to see if there are other communities already out there so that you're not having to reinvent the wheel all the time. And it's very easy to do these searches on Twitter or Instagram or blogs, Google search, whatever methodology you want to use. I think it's it's very easy to find people and communities out there. But if it's not, yeah, go for it. Why not? I think people are going to gravitate to you with similar interests and passions. And then what was your your other question? You know, I think you've sort of answered it there, which is uh, about intentional versus organic. But I guess the second part was I would be keen to get specific now because you probably were in the position back in 2007 of thinking, I'd like to really condense some friends I have into a community of practice. I'm going to start academic life in emergency medicine. Do you want to give us a little sense of why that was the right time and uh, how intentional you were about it? I wish I was intentional about it. In retrospect, it looked like I was very intentional about it. But frankly, I just want to tell everybody I was not. So I think the way I I went about it was it was a a pseudo community of one, which was me. and, And I was essentially an educational orphan in that I at my local institution was the only one interested in potentially pursuing a digital scholarship uh, career path. Uh, And then I started noticing people, observing people on specifically Twitter, because back then it was a very small core group of educators on there. And they, too, were educational orphans, as they like to call themselves. And I'm like, well, I have this blog space that you can publish to the public and we can take shared credit and shared wins from these efforts. And, and, And over time, this started forming a team because then they contribute a lot of their academic time and efforts into our efforts to publish educational content. So, you know, I think cultivating was, it seemed intentional, but in the end, it was just collecting a bunch of educational orphans out there. And I'm still doing it now. And I think there are a lot of people who are working by themselves and reinventing wheels that really shouldn't have to. Yeah, and I think this is the paper makes this point. They say, well, part of this is about uh, finding a community of practice. Some of it is about developing your own. And I, like you, see people who are very enthusiastic about starting a podcast or starting a blog, and it's them and no one else. And I go, you're really going to find it hard to keep a sustained output. And instead, we know so many people who are keen for content that who are already running blogs and podcasts who I think they could potentially join and have just as productive a time. So that's very interesting because uh, that's actually the story of how Canadian was born. And so there had been a lot of people who were very enthusiastic, had actually had um, started their own podcast, had their own little blog. And over time, Brent and I were encountering these people that were constantly thinking, okay, I'm about like one blog post away from burning out. I'm one podcast away from this not being sustainable. I've just had a baby. I just got promoted. I just got my first staff gig. And people were just not being able to sustain the passion that they once had. And so we actually, Canadium is an amalgamation of multiple blogs and podcasts that all decided that they were going to be better together. A very Canadian thing to do, admittedly. Um, But it was very interesting because that's exactly 
why we created this new community of practice so that people could be connected so that we could have a place where our medical students and our residents could be peripherally legitimate by joining as occasional writers, editors, and then they could apprentice in becoming our digital scholars, some of our assistant editors, and sometimes just taking projects and running with it. So really proud of that team and the way it's built because it's not just a team, it's a whole community. Because when we've done quality assurance projects with our junior editors, they're telling us things like, we really love this community. We really feel like we're connected. And these are med students from disparate uh, sites all across Canada, which is a large geographic footprint. Uh, and we literally have someone from coast to coast now as part of our team, people that have been either alumni, scholars, or people who have just come along the way and edited a blog post here or there or written one. And so yeah. it was with intention that we created that group. So the, the distance between that would probably be that um, when Michelle was beginning her journey with Alien, um, it was more organic and building. But when Brent came and I came along and um, kind of marshaled that merger, it was we were needing that space. We were needing to create the structures that could make, I guess, FOMED or, or free open access medical education a little bit more sustainable for the passionate providers that had been putting their blood, sweat and tears into things. Can I interrupt and ask a question of you two, actually, which Teresa sparked a question in my mind, which is many people are evolving from the solo initiative to the team initiative, but so many of those teams also fail and, and don't sustain. And I'm curious what the secret sauce is that, that makes them more sustainable than others. Any thoughts on that? Great question. Uh, Teresa, did you want to start with that? Sure. I mean, I think part of the secret sauce is uh, critical mass. Um, so having a lot of people who can, you know, try out editing, try out blog posting, um, I think that they need to try it out sometimes to decide if this is the peripherally legitimate thing that they want to then spend more time in. Having avenues for people to then supercharge that by giving them bigger projects, by um, celebrating their successes. Um, and I think it's it's probably the size of the team that makes it sustainable. Um and then I think that there has to be a little bit of uh, succession planning and all those other things that you have to do as a leader to make the structures viable. Because I think that one of the things often when you're doing stuff organically is that you're not thinking ahead three, five years. You're not building up the structures. You're not doing the planning. It's kind of like the difference between a startup CEO who can get a, you know, like a, a garage kind of like innovation into maybe the first iteration of a company. And then sometimes those uh those startup uh, CEOs get booted out for someone who's now a sustaining CEO. Um, and I think that that's the, that's the hard transition phase for a lot of these groups. And so I think that the difference between the various groups I've volunteered for is what's the level of intentionality that we're thinking about building the community, building people up, making sure that they see this as a, as a viable uh, career path. Teresa is so good about the whole intentional planning thing. I, I definitely take the lead from her. And I focus a little bit more on the softer sciences of building psychological trust. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily the secret sauce, but I think that's where I've been focusing more of my time on celebrating our team wins, I think boosts all of our morale. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe they're not getting enough credit at their local institutions, but dang it, we're going to celebrate the heck out of you with Slack emojis to no end. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think building some sort of community trust goes a long way. But I think my next phase will probably move towards a legacy planning, founder's dilemma type uh, path. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, 
What you're describing is a lot of things I think that have been investigated in the organisational behaviour, in the management literature. Uh, I know that those sorts of things also are addressed in the Harvard Macy Institute uh, leadership program or leaders program rather. Mm. And my thoughts, and just before we do that, I would like listeners to know, I'll put a link to these sites on uh, our associated blog sites, but it's worth having a little look. So Canadian that Teresa's been talking about is canadiem.org and uh, that is their online community of practice for Canadian emergency medicine and uh, what Michelle's been talking about alium is uh, academic life and emergency medicine which is aliem.com and if you actually go onto these sites you can get a sense of the breadth of both contributors the breadth of topics covered and also a sense of the different tools that these uh, organizations are using uh, my own thoughts back to your question Michelle is I would echo everything that Teresa said about sustainability the way organizations do and the thing I'd add which certainly I think both Teresa and I've taken from you is the leadership approach that uh, you've taken there and that involves a lot of organization it involves you talk about slack emojis which aren't quite my style but that doesn't really matter but as you say really thinking why people here why are they motivated what kind of uh, vision am I communicating about what I'm trying to uh, achieve with that. Yeah, and I think a part of it is that Michelle's really good at talent spotting people. So I'll definitely praise her for that. I think that um, you give people that psychological safety, Michelle, that's awesome. That's definitely secret to the success. And I think you foster people's innovative spirits and give them a space to run. And that's really important as well. So I think that kudos to you for your great leadership. Um, and I think that those are definitely elements of the secret sauce as well. I just think that we we all need to bring different skill sets to make things successful. And I think that uh, that uh, it's important to acknowledge that there's the interpersonal stuff, there's the structural stuff, there's the political stuff. Um, and a big part of uh, what makes us successful is, is that uh, symbolic political stuff as well, which is that there was a space that needed to be taken. And these uh, entities have emerged as new spaces for people to band together and do great work. All right. So we've got the Mutual Appreciation Society going here, ladies. This is excellent. Uh, I did want to delve back to the paper for a minute or two. And uh, Teresa, I was hoping you might uh, just sort of take us through just a couple of extra bits about the what. So this is an opinion piece. As you said, there was a group of you who were interested. Uh, What was the actual purpose of it? It was just to inform about the concepts, to illustrate some of the practicalities. Uh, What are you hoping people will do when they read this paper? I think we were just trying to give people the anatomy of what a virtual community practice looks like for um, health professions educators. Because I think there's, like you said, a lot of lonely educators out there. Maybe they're the only faculty developer in their shop. Maybe they're uh, the only person that does online education. Maybe they're a junior person that can't kind of break into that clique of uh, scientists that seem to do a lot of education work, but they want to do some scholarship. These are all reasons why people may feel too peripheral to be even peripherally legitimate. And so I think that uh, giving an architecture to spaces that people could create to expand their current, like, like nidus group and maybe think about how they might do even a blended learning model if they have a live version of a community that they really enjoy like let's say you have an academy or something like that what's what's the virtual corridor that you're creating so that people can interface between sessions that you do are you only doing stuff online are you doing stuff uh in person synchronously are there ways that you could do both i think that my intention at least for bringing some of these uh pl- this i think my intention for doing some of these 
um, kind of examples that you see in the table were to help people visualize the actual usages of each of these kind of uh, virtual communities. So whether it's a blog, kind of like Harvard Macy's blog, whether it's an open network like on Twitter where you have a tweet chat, whether it's a closed network where you just want to connect a whole lot of people that should know each other. Um, each of these has a different architecture to it, maybe a slightly different audience that you're trying to um, open yourself up to. And then I think we've given some examples and tried to cite literature wherever we could. So you could see if there was a, a playbook where people have mentioned it. And so I think that table is very useful and the citations that are linked to the table probably actually give you the articulation of how some of these groups have done it. So for instance, we've outlined how we did the medical education and cases series, which is kind of like massive online PBL, I guess. It's an ex-MOOC where we actually had people like collaboratively talk to each other to co-create answers to difficult cases. Or there's the Canadian blog where we've actually outlined exactly play-by-play uh, what we structurally built into KDM when we went and to, to develop that merger. And then finally, I think the other thing that we've highlighted would be things like NEFJC, which is like a bunch of nephrologists that do this journal club. And they do this really cool thing where they have something called NEF Madness every March around the time of March Madness, where they basically pit journal articles after each other. And there's this huge network of blended learning that erupts every year where their internal medicine teams that are... Um, actually doing brackets together to figure out which paper is going to be the best paper of the year. And like, it's super engaging and just super interesting to see. So shout out to uh, Matt Sparks and uh, Joel Toff, who are both nephrologists that have pioneered this and have like absolutely lit up the whole Twitter sphere with their work in every March. Like even as a non-nephrologist, I know about nephrology papers usually around March uh-huh. time. It's those nerdy, uh, incredibly clever nephrology doctors hard to keep down. So, uh, yeah, so I really love this uh, table that you've got there um, in this in this article. Both the table and the figures, I think, are reasons to have a look at it, as you said, describing what kind of uh, communities of practice, what are the audiences, how do they work, and some examples in there are worth the deep dive. Uh, what I would like to do is a sort of, as we sort of think, towards bringing this discussion to a close is uh, two things. One is, you know, we've been very glowing here uh, and I want to talk about a couple of downsides. And then I want to talk particularly about the specific role of podcasts and one of the tools of virtual communities of practice. But can I start with, um, you know, the fears? And I guess we've got people who've got some generic fears about online participation and then some people who just feel like, well, this is now just a rabbit hole and it's going to be a huge time soak. And it can be. Uh, Michelle, can I ask you, uh, you know, what sort of reassurance would we give to people who are a little, I guess, hesitant to really get into virtual communities of practice because of either of these concerns? Well, that is a, those are very valid concerns. And usually the advice I give people is that it will, there is a fire hose of information out there, but it is not a matter of zero to a hundred. You are not just flipping a switch and just turning everything on. I would say just turn on one little faucet maybe and lurk in that space See what the social norms are like. Is this exactly fueling your passion? And if it's not, be a-okay with turning off that faucet. And it is not, it doesn't fit the current you and what you want to develop into. So 
Why, why do you have to have this extra cognitive load on you? So I, I tap into different little faucets and I turn others off over time. And I think it's kind of a constant grooming process as you figure out what is your ideal personal learning network using all of these digital technologies. So start small. If you're on Twitter, maybe follow three people and just see what they say. And if a common theme comes out of it, maybe you should look into it, um, but start very small. Yeah, I think that's very wise advice. And uh, it seems to me also there's a lot of peer mentoring that goes on uh, and asking other people how they engage on these uh, platforms as well. Just for our Australian and New Zealand listeners, a faucet is a tap. Uh, so uh, take Michelle's example there and translate it for you. Uh, Teresa, did you have any other sort of thoughts on um, both these quite valid concerns, I think? Yeah, I think that like sometimes it's okay to just watch and listen. You don't always have to be someone that stands on the soapbox and actually says a lot of things. So some people who might not be innately super extroverted may find it very hard to get on a very open platform like Twitter. And that's totally okay. If um, you're participating by just reading other people's work and uh, following along in the discussion, that's literally what they talk about as peripherally legitimate for now. Um, and then you might want to apprentice in. You might want to... Um, like join a tweet chat one time rather than just reading the transcript the day after. Uh, maybe just even just to introduce yourself and go no further than that. Uh, maybe it's about reaching out to someone at a conference when you're kind of like following the conference hashtag and actually meeting up with them. Christina Zara, she's like the, I guess, uh, lead social media person for Harvard Macy. And she sidelined me at AMC a couple of years ago. And we've been collaborators ever since. Like we worked on a paper together and like she's one of my really good Twitter friends. So that's the kind of opportunity that you might have by using these online strategies. So you don't have to keep them completely digital. Most of my friends that I have uh, met online, I target to try to meet them in real life sometime. And it's kind of really exciting to do that, especially at conferences and things like that. So um, just like you can call a call an, a, like a car to come pick you up on Uber, you, you can now like, you know, DM a friend at a major conference and say, are you here? Can we meet up? And it's like they appear. It's amazing. Excellent. Uh, and thank you for the shout out there to hashtag HMI chat, which uh, we know goes on every month for Harvard Macy and to Christina, who uh, does great work on the social media program. Uh, and in fact, that's a nice segue into what I want to talk about, because as uh, we've indicated, this is our episode one of our Harvard Macy Institute uh, podcasts. And we're hoping to think about this as one of those tools that might help to connect our Harvard Macy Institute community. Uh, and can I ask you, maybe starting with you, Michelle, about the role of podcasts uh, as one of the tools for these uh, digital communities? Yeah, I think I was never sold on this about podcasts really having any longevity when I first saw it pop onto the scene maybe 15 years ago. And lo and behold, it has really exploded. And I'm, I was privileged enough to join a research team to do a qualitative study recently, which looked at what exactly is driving specifically emergency medicine residents to use podcasts for learning to help them join this greater, broader emergency medicine community, as it were. And it's, it's fascinating, the the dialogue that came out of it, a lot of the transcripts and coding. And interestingly, we, we boiled it down into three themes as to how podcasts can help um, communities of practice. And one is that it it's all a matter of opportunistic engagement. They loved it because they could listen to it anytime they wanted, in the kitchen, washing dishes, driving a car. 
Um, the other one is personalized learning. But the third domain, which was really the underlying theme of it all, I felt like, is that it really enhanced a sense of community amongst everybody. It meant it helped the residents feel more bonded with their peers who also listened to the podcast. It helped build a bridge in a certain language when they were talking with their local faculty. And it made them feel, they made them belong, it made them feel like they belong to the profession as, as a whole. And so I think really it has me sold. Podcast really has some serious legs to help to bring down kind of the mystery and the facade and the sterility of communities. And it has, a, it gives it a lot more humanistic feel to it. And so I think uh, that's really the secret sauce behind podcasts, I think. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, shout out to Jeff Riddell, uh, who's done the work in this area. He's the first author of the paper uh, for the record. The paper is called Independent and Interwoven, a Qualitative Exploration of Residence Experience with uh, Educational Podcasts. And right now it's still online first at Academic Medicine. So you can see the ugly accepted version, which has all the right content and the great figure, but none of the typesetting. <laughs> I'll put a link to that in our notes as well. I have also read that and Jeff does wonderful work. One of the other things that came out of that, I think, uh, is was about efficiency and a lot of our junior medical learners and I know other health professions as well uh, really want to make the most of their time. So they also saw listening to podcasts as an efficient way to get stuff when they're on the train or driving uh, when they couldn't be reading their textbooks or practicing their central lines. Uh, did you have any other thoughts, Teresa, on the role of podcasts? Yeah, I think that the other part of the, that paper that was very revealing to me is the idea that there's a socio-materiality to the podcast, that like sometimes by listening to the podcast of like three people talking like this one, you might feel like you're a part of that conversation and it might lower the threshold for you to come up to me like, I really like your podcast. I find I do that with like the key line people. Like uh, I, I barely know Linda, but I feel like Linda Snell is like someone that I actually know quite well because of uh, the Keyline podcast. And so shout out to Jonathan Sherboneau, Jason Frank, Linda Snell, and now Laura Varpio, who are like the four musketeers of that great meta podcast that really makes me feel like I'm part of a greater community of medical educators that are nerding out about science. Um, and I think that that's like the kind of sensation and having been to WAMC and watching Keyline Live there or International Conference on Resi Residency Education, uh, where there's like, you have to buy a ticket and like, it's always sold out. And I can't even, I feel like that's definitely a phenomenon that the podcast can enable. But I think the best part of it is like when locally we all kind of like get together and read a paper and then we kind of like listen to the podcast afterwards or even before just to understand where other people have thought about it. And so I think that that's where it can be really nice is that that peer sharing is really um, important and makes you feel like you're part of the same fabric. Um, it's kind of like that water cooler talk you have about the latest uh, episode of XYZ. So what now that Game of Thrones is over, I guess right now I like watching his dark materials and whatever it is. Like So it's like having something to talk about and having a shared understanding, a shared repertoire. Excellent. Always like references to Game of Thrones in any podcast, uh, as well as learning about socio-materiality. Now you're really talking about a proper, like a proper academic there, Teresa. Uh, I'd also echo your shout out to Key Lime. Wow, what an amazing podcast. Uh, and I think, yes, listening to that certainly makes you feel like you're part of their uh, community who critique those um, med-ed literature. All right, so we've had a very wide-ranging discussion here uh, and it's been very illustrative, I think, of what's happening in this area of virtual communities of practice. I'm going to ask both of you now, 
uh, for our listeners. What, let's get practical. What are your, you know, one or two take-home suggestions and tips for uh, both joining a community of practice, a virtual community of practice, but also uh, cultivating that if you're already part of one or you're already part of a community that's trying to use more virtual uh, adjuncts, tools and strategies. So, uh, Michelle, maybe you could start a couple of tips of a practical nature. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think tips, if you're just starting out in joining a community, not to be repetitive, but really lurking is an okay status to be in. I have so many virtual mentors who don't even know I'm a mentee because I just lurk, listen to how they behave in these online spaces. I listen to what they say. And and that informs a lot of uh, decisions that I need to make. If I'm going to fork it or so what would this person do? And then I, I follow that path. And so with them, with more people in your community, you, you, you have a smaller blind spot. So it is a okay to lurk, just listen and absorb like a sponge. That's probably my biggest tip. And in terms of cultivating, I think once you're in a space, you don't realize how lucky you are to have this entire community with you is to be care- be cognizant of these peripheral lurkers, bring them into your conversation. I oftentimes on, um, I, we recently started moving towards the Instagram space as a, another community we're trying to foster is I actually do tag a few people who like a post that we have and just call them out and say, Hey, what do you think about this? And, and bring them into the conversation because some people are a little bit more introverted like myself and I feel their pain. And so I, I try to reach out a little bit more towards them to get them engaged. Excellent. That sounds like uh, fabulous tips. Uh, Teresa, advice for our listeners. Yeah. So I think that if you're um, just beyond that contemplation phase of diving in, I think tweet chats are a great way to kind of integrate into a mix of people who are enthusiastic and willing to listen to you and be patient with you because there's a lot of other people tweeting. Um, So I think that that's one way to get involved. So check out one of the HMI chats. Sometimes I would say that the synchronous chat where they're all power tweeting for an hour, that can be a little intimidating. So remember HMI chat goes for the full 24 hours. So like you don't have to say everything you have to say in that one hour, you can actually I really like that part of each of my chat is that you can actually space out your thinking. You can walk away. You can look up an article. You can come back and post. And it's still part of that conversation that's going over that 24 hours. So I think really, really nice to do that. For the cultivators, I think that uh, one of the pro tips I have is 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 do read around uh, Levin Wenger's model. Use it like a playbook. But there are a lot of things that are in there that really help elucidate uh, some of the common problems that you have as someone who's a community builder to think through, oh, am I doing, oh, I'm not doing that. That's why it's so awkward. That's why people find it hard to X, Y, Z. And so those are the kind of things that um, you can use some of these theories to inform your practice. So um, theories or conceptual frameworks, I guess. Um, it, it, that's how you can actually bring them into that design phase of things. A lot of the time we talk about conceptual frameworks and theories for research because it's the basis of how you're going to do stuff. Um, but it's also a great tool to use it as a filter to intentionally design um, an initiative or to base it as a, as a structural element of what you're about to do as an educator. So I think that um, theory has a place in application, which is really cool. Excellent. 
All right. Well, thank you both so much for your comments. So uh, just to sort of recap for our listeners, we've been talking about virtual communities of practice and in particular uh, using as our starting point the article Finding Your People in the Digital Age, Virtual Communities of Practice to Promote Education Scholarship by Yaris et al. in Journal of Graduate Medical Education. Uh, It's been a great pleasure. And can I just thank you both again? Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Teresa. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. And I'm Victoria Brazel signing off again for the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Mm-hmm.